All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is Chapter 2, Supplemental Episode 2, The Clipper Chip Debate. Again, this is an episode that is a bit outside of our narrative, but it's something that I kept running across as I've been doing research into the early 90s tech scene. And given the current debates, well, I, I just found it interesting in the current context. I should point out that This is not my intention to get political here. This episode will be in the context of the Snowden revelations about NSA monitoring internet traffic and communications and such. And whether you think Snowden is a traitor or a hero is not really something that I care to get into. But I also think government surveillance of our internet activities is not something that is a right-wing issue or a left-wing issue. If you care at all about the internet as it was designed, then you should be concerned about any outside force coming in and mucking it up at a basic level, whether that be the government or Comcast or whoever. So with that out of the way, let me read you a quote. There is a concern that the internet could be used to commit crimes and that advanced encryption could disguise such activity. However, We do not provide the government with phone jacks outside our homes for unlimited wiretaps. Why, then, should we grant government the Orwellian capability to listen at will and in real time to our communications across the web? Now, if I gave you no attribution for that quote, you'd be forgiven for assuming it was recent. Logically, you might assume that the quote came from a privacy crusader angered maybe by the Snowden revelations and agitating to protect our civil liberties online. But the truth is, that quote is, it is about opposition to NSA-sponsored surveillance initiatives, but the quote comes from 1997, and it comes from none other than John Ashcroft. Over and over again, as I've been reading magazines and newspapers from the early 90s, I've run across references to the debate about the so-called clipper chip. This was an initiative by the NSA 
supported by the Clinton administration, that would have inserted an encryption chip with a government, quote, backdoor into every phone and electronic communication device manufactured. I personally have just a vague recollection of the issue from the time, but looking back 20 years later at the fierce debate that surrounded the clipper chip is both bizarre, because people like Ashcroft and other Republicans who would go on to oversee the implementation of things like Stellar Wind after 9-11 were at this time opposed to NSA spying, but it's also been edifying you know, the clipper chip debate was perhaps the first time the digital community rose up in defense of its rights. And given the state of our current debate about government surveillance of communications and our online lives, I thought it would be instructive to look back at the clipper chip debate and see what lessons we could glean from it. Long before the fight against PIPA and SOPA, this was the first time that citizens of the net rose up and proved that they were a constituency that mattered. After all, the clipper chip was defeated, or at least we thought it was. So it was a simpler time, at least in terms of technology. Back in the early 90s, the internet was just going mainstream. The web had only recently been born, and those few million Americans who were going online largely did so by dialing into places like America Online and Prodigy. But the country was primed for some kind of technological revolution. As we've seen, magazines and newspapers were hyping a new digital future that they dubbed the Information Superhighway. In a previous episode of this podcast, in fact, um, the, the chapter episodes for, for this chapter, I laid out how the Information Superhighway and the Internet were two entirely different phenomena. But the Internet rose to prominence soon after the Infobon hype, so most people assumed they were the same thing. The administration of Bill Clinton and Al Gore had won office in part by championing the promise of technological investment as a way to overcome the post-Gulf War I recession. Clinton, and Gore especially, seemed to be plugged into the vanguard of a new tech utopianism. It was the time of the launch of Wired Magazine, of the Mosaic Browser, of freeware and shareware, the techno-counterculture felt itself ascendant, ready to usher in a transformative new age, which the neo-laissez-faire Clinton administration seemed eager to encourage. Which is why it was so shocking when, in 1993, news of the clipper chip leaked out. It seemed that the promise of cyberspace would be corralled and caged before it could even get going. What was worse, it wasn't say, Microsoft or some other large company that would be the jailer, it would be the U.S. government. Into the midst of this early tech euphoria waited the National Security Administration. At the time, the NSA was the less well-known sibling of the CIA, tasked since the Truman Administration with the code-making and code-breaking aspects of the espionage game. The NSA was less familiar because up until the church hearings of the 1970s, the U.S. government had never officially acknowledged the existence of the NSA. Until that time, it was euphemistically referred to as no such agency. But at this point in time, computers were beginning to take over our lives. In 1993, only 22% of American households owned a computer, but that would more than double in a few short years. 
And computers had made great inroads in corporate America. And, of course, the general telecom revolution was starting to hit its stride as well. Cellular telephony was on the horizon. The great technical innovations of the day were fax machines and cordless landline telephones. The powers that were in law enforcement and national security were concerned about this. More and more of the world's daily business was moving away from realms that were conducive to monitoring by traditional methods, such as wiretapping, bugging, and just sifting through people's trash. Now things were increasingly done via ones and zeros, zipping around the world at the speed of light. It wasn't that the new electronic means of communication were secure. Far from it. If you'll recall, it was ridiculously easy to eavesdrop on people's cordless telephone conversations, as Prince Charles and Princess Diana both so famously discovered at the time. But in this new digital realm, there was a great solution to the problem of privacy, and that was encryption. If it was digital, it could be encrypted, and it could be encrypted in a way that, even for the government, might be unbreakable. Thus, the NSA found the role and the relevancy that it perhaps was born for. And this is maybe our first great lesson from this historical debate. The NSA first became interested in the digital world because it feared encryption. Encryption means unbreakable codes, and remember that breaking codes is the NSA's jam. And so a second key point to realize here is that in terms of eavesdropping and surveillance, listening in to old-style wired communications and radio transmissions really isn't that difficult, technologically speaking. But breaking into digitally encrypted communications is orders of magnitude harder. Especially in the era of powerful computers, once you put information into digital form, the math is such that there is a very real possibility that you will never break the code. Innovations such as public key cryptography, digital signatures, and the RSA algorithm would, by the 80s and 90s, lead to the protocols such as SSL, which make the modern internet possible. One of the many reasons people were initially skeptical of the viability of e-commerce was because they feared that a sufficient level of security could never be achieved. SSL was the solution to that problem. And so, those in the surveillance community were worried that once the majority of communications entered the digital domain, and thus the domain of this unbreakable math, the snoops and surveillers of the world might be frozen out, possibly forever. Theoretically unbreakable encryption could be employed to lock down communications. And clearly the NSA was one of those aware of this looming problem, and they were worried that they might soon be unable to do their job. So they decided to get ahead of the issue before they were locked out of the coming wave of digital communications entirely. In 1993, the NSA began circulating a proposal to create the technology that would eventually have the name Clipper Chip. The idea was basically that in the factory, every new piece of electronic hardware produced would be equipped with a chipset that would allow standard cryptography to take place and shield communications from third-party eavesdropping. The encryption would function as intended, but there would be one big caveat. By design, a third key 
would exist in every chipset. This key would be held, quote, in escrow by the government. If the government could prove, for example, via a traditional warrant, okayed by a judge, that the communications in question needed to be unencrypted for the purposes of law enforcement, then the third key could be used to unlock everything. Initially, the proposal emphasized that the clipper chip would be voluntarily added to phones, as that was the dominant means of communication even at that time. But clearly, the scheme could be implemented in the manufacture of computers, fax machines, pagers, and the like further down the road. I'll leave it to the experts at the Crypto Museum to explain the technological details. Quote, the clipper chip used the slipjack encryption algorithm for the transmission of information and the Diffie-Hellman key exchange algorithm for the distribution of the cryptographic session keys between peers. The slipjack algorithm was developed by the NSA and was classed an NSA Type 2 encryption device. The algorithm was initially classified as secret so that it could not be examined in the usual manner, by the encryption research community. After much debate, the slipjack algorithm was finally declassified and published by the NSA on 24th June 1998. It used an 80-bit key as a symmetric cipher algorithm similar to DES, end quote. Now, I'm not technically adept enough to understand what any of that means, but what is fascinating to me about this proposal, at least in retrospect, is that it was proposed publicly. Again, maybe it was a simpler time, or maybe the NSA thought that the logic of their argument could carry the day. Essentially, the proposal made the point that if in the future we fear that our traditional surveillance tools might be rendered inoperative, in preparation for that day, let's just all agree to voluntarily move the existing surveillance apparatus into the future. It will just be like wiretapping, but now online. We'll still have to go to a judge and get permission to listen in, but that's what we already have to do. This will allow us, the NSA, to essentially do the same thing we've always done, but before we can do so, we have to bake in this hardware component first, or we'll be back to square one. The logic of that argument certainly convinced the Clinton administration, which in February 1994 announced support for the Clipper Chip Initiative. And some security and law enforcement experts concurred, fearing clearly that technology was about to bring on a surveillance apocalypse. Here is the New York Times from June of 1994. Quote, If something like Clipper is not implemented, writes Dorothy E. Denning, a Georgetown University computer scientist, then all communications on the information highway would be immune from lawful interception. In a world threatened by international organized crime, terrorism, and rogue governments, this would be folly. End quote. It's impossible to understate how much the widespread use of cryptography that computers and digital technology made possible was the NSA's Armageddon scenario. Again, from that same New York Times piece, quote, That was the National Security Agency's greatest nightmare. Every company, every citizen now had routine access to the sorts of cryptographic technology that not many years ago ranked alongside the atom bomb as a source of power. 
Every call, every computer message, every fax in the world could be harder to decipher than the famous German Enigma machine of World War II. Maybe even impossible to decipher. End quote. And so, how civil of the NSA. They seem to be taking their greatest problem to the public and asking them, voluntarily, in the interest of national security to go along with solving it for them. The implicit promise seemed to be that the new system would operate just as the old system always had. Judicial oversights, warrants. They would have to get permission to utilize that third key held in escrow. Except a lot of people didn't quite see it that way. The clipper chip quickly attracted a firestorm of controversy. For one thing, the technology industry was wary. The whole thing seemed heavy-handed. The government wanted the right to insert something into every product that private industry made. That feels a bit icky even to us today, but in 1994, it felt downright draconian. Participation in the clipper chip hardware program was supposed to be voluntary, but private enterprise saw Big Brother everywhere in this scheme. And so the only telephone, and to my knowledge, the only piece of hardware ever produced with the actual clipper chip inside, was the TSD-3600 developed by AT&T, a phone. The actual clipper chip itself, known as MYK78T, was manufactured by a company named Mycotronks. It was voluntary, of course, but it was also costly. An unprogrammed chip reportedly cost $16, and a programmed one cost $26 to manufacture. So who wanted to pass that on to the consumer voluntarily? Industry was also concerned that adopting this sort of device would put American technology at a disadvantage in the global marketplace. With echoes of the current debate about how NSA spying has broken trust in Silicon Valley, companies argued at the time that foreign consumers and corporations would not want to buy American electronics with a clipper chip inside them. After all, the escrow key was only in one entity's hands, and that was Uncle Sam. So why would a German or a Chinese businessman buy a phone that Uncle Sam had the unlock key for? But the opposition was also a product of the times. This was 1994, remember, the time of the Republican tidal wave against the administration of Bill Clinton. This was the era of contract with America. This was Ruby Ridge and Waco and Janet Reno. I hope I'm not carving out, again, any sort of partisan stance when I state that the party out of power always tends to rediscover its faith in civil liberties when it's out of power. And thus, Republicans, along with some Democrats, it should be pointed out, came out strongly against the clipper chip initiative. Again, let's return to this John Ashcroft speech that I'm quoting from from the very beginning of this piece, which was made some years after the debate had died down, but exemplified the Republican opposition to the scheme. Ashcroft was considered the go-to point man in Congress for opposition to the clipper chip. Here's Ashcroft again. The Clinton administration would like the federal government to have the capability to read any international or domestic computer communications. The FBI wants access to decode, digest, and discuss financial transactions, personal email, and proprietary information sent abroad, all in the name of national security. 
To accomplish this, President Clinton would like government agencies to have the keys for decoding all exported U.S. software and Internet communications. This proposed policy raises obvious concerns about Americans' privacy, in addition to tampering with the competitive advantage that our U.S. software companies currently enjoy in the field of encryption technology. Not only would Big Brother be looming over the shoulders of international cyber surfers, but the administration threatens to render our state-of-the-art computer software engineers obsolete and unemployed. End quote. Of course, Ashcroft himself, just a few years later, would be part of the administration that would, after 9-11, implement a policy that would do all of the above. But it wasn't just Republican senators and telecom companies that were discomfited by the clipper chip. The nascent digital rights movement was quick to seize upon the clipper chip as a call to arms. Organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the Electronic Privacy Information Center, and the Center for Democracy and Technology had been formed in the 90s partially as a way to protect hackers and rebrand hacking as a potentially legitimate endeavor. But they were all quick to pivot and tackle the clipper chip threat as well. These groups, along with the ACLU, joined forces to challenge the legality of the chip, saying that it was more like key surrender rather than key escrow. EFF co-founder John Perry Barlow told Time Magazine, quote, You can have my encryption algorithm when you pry my cold dead fingers from my private key. End quote. A group called Computer Professionals for Social Responsibility gathered tens of thousands of signatures via email, one of the first times, in fact, that the Internet was used for this kind of awareness raising and advocacy. A group called the Cypher Punks met regularly in Silicon Valley to devise code that would preemptively break the clipper chip or else render it useless. And indeed, efforts like this led to the development of a whole new generation of encryption packages like Nautilus, PGP, and PGP Phone. The hope was that if the public adopted enough of these packages, the clipper chip could be crippled right out of the gate. The episode I'm working on now is about the birth of Wired Magazine, and if you look at the Wired issues from the first year of publication, stories about government surveillance of technology pop up again and again, as well as stories about this sort of digital advocacy. Over the course of 1994 through 1996, the young Internet community rose as one to defeat what they saw as a threat to their lifestyle. Among the generation of computer nerds and geeks that had spent the 70s and 80s imagining all the ways that digital technology would transform society, there was a tangible sense that it was all finally happening. The long-promised cyberpunk future was now. They were not about to see everything ruined right at their moment of triumph. And let's not forget the unique mishmash of culture that the internet and the web grew out of. Early internet culture was a weird sort of hybrid of 60s San Francisco hippy-dippyism meshed with MIT computer scientist libertarianism. This was an era when shareware was more common than pay software on the net, when advertisements and commercialism on the web were seen as a betrayal of core values. 
It was a time when the anarchist cookbook was just as freely traded on Usenet groups as pornography and cracked copies of Doom. Silicon Valley is a place that has always embraced the ideas of the Whole Earth Catalog and Peter Thiel in equal measure. And so, an odd combination of industry, congressional, and hacktivist pressure combined to defeat the clipper chip. It helped that industry leaders from Apple to Netscape all came out against the proposal. It also helped that a young computer scientist at Bell Labs figured out that the clipper chip was easily spoofed. The chip proposal was never formally dropped, of course. The Clinton administration made several revised attempts to launch the proposal in modified formats, but it was largely quietly forgotten. Again, I think it was a combination of factors unique to the time period that helped sink the clipper chip. On the one hand, Republican fear of Clinton-style big governmentism generated a meaningful political energy for opposition. And at the same time, the administration was already beginning to see that, indeed, Silicon Valley-led technological innovation could, and eventually would, bring about an unprecedented era of creativity and prosperity. So there was a bit of not wanting to look a gift horse in the mouth when it came to the technology industry. In addition, this entire topic was newfangled and confusing to the non-tech-minded politicians. If the geeks said that this policy was bad for the technology industry overall, then the polls were willing to take their word for it. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. But when we look at this debate in the context of the present... The interesting thing, I think, is that the NSA's game is basically the same as it ever was. It's obvious now that the NSA has had one motivation this entire time. Ever since society has moved in a digital direction, they have been living in fear of being rendered redundant. They know that unbreakable encryption is possible in a digital world, and as more and more aspects of everyday life are being lived online, they fear a day will come when they are completely blind and impotent. The clipper chip was the NSA's first attempt to solve this problem. And it was also an attempt on the NSA's part, possibly in good faith, to come to an accommodation with a digital society that was developing. We would all be allowed to do our surfing and our chatting, 
If only we would be so kind as to leave a back door open for the NSA to do their job of monitoring us. But we rejected this polite proposal, and so we have to assume that the NSA simply resolved to stop asking for permission. It would only be five short years between the time that the debate about the clipper chip died down, roughly in 1996, and the events in 2001 that would inspire the laws that would give the NSA the legal fig leaf to do kind of what they've always wanted to do. This is, I think, the key insight that looking back at the clipper chip debate gives us. A lot of us tend to think of the NSA as this all-powerful, voracious, and rapacious entity seeking to monitor and possibly control our online lives. We feel like they want to record everything we do because they are on a mad power trip of some kind. But from an equally probable perspective, the NSA is an agency running scared. The wired world is here now, and it's their worst nightmare come true. In the past, only a tiny fraction of the world's business was done behind the closed doors of encryption. But now it's almost all ones and zeros, and the NSA knows that the math is always out there to create encryption systems that they can't break into. So from their perspective, complete disaster is always right around the corner, and it has been since the early 90s. What we know now about the NSA's behavior bears this out. The clipper chip was just their first gambit. But the goal has always been the same— to poke enough holes in encryption systems to keep their capabilities intact. As Paul Coker, one of the designers of the SSL protocol, told the New York Times, the failure of the clipper chip was, at best, just a bump in the road. Quote, they went and did it anyway, without telling anyone. The intelligence community has worried about, quote, going dark forever, but today they are conducting instant, total invasion of privacy with limited effort, end quote. Thanks to Snowden, we know now that around the year 2000, with initiatives like Project Bull Run, Stellar Wind, and others, the NSA has been pressuring technology vendors to install backdoors in their products that the snoops can then exploit. Going to Facebook and Google and Demanding to tap into their servers is just like asking AT&T to, quote, voluntarily install clipper chips into phones. But nowadays, cooperation is not even remotely voluntary. The NSA is done asking. The law is such that you have no choice but to cooperate. And the NSA is not above stealing tech or covertly inserting vulnerabilities behind a vendor's back. We also now know that the NSA is perfectly comfortable exploiting security vulnerabilities, even at the expense of the health of the wider web. The NSA knew about the heartbleed bug long before we found out about it, and so it's little wonder that the same debates that surfaced around the clipper chip are coming to the fore once again. For example, doesn't this level of insecurity just leave us all a little bit less safe? After all, if the NSA is going around purposefully breaking things like SSL, then sure. In the name of national security, our banking systems could be compromised. And also, isn't a surveillance regime like this just ripe for abuse? Well, yes, if you've seen the revelations about NSA technicians spying on their ex-girlfriends and the like. 
And also, couldn't this ultimately cost Silicon Valley its reputation and thereby its lead in technology and profits? Well, almost certainly. There have been plenty of articles that have come out recently saying that foreign corporations and even governments are wary of doing business with Silicon Valley now that they know the NSA is probably listening in. And it can be argued that this comes at a particularly delicate time, as more and more of technology is, at this very moment, moving towards the cloud, we now, of course, have to worry about the fact that the NSA has a virtual clipper chip already installed in those cloud servers. These were all precisely the arguments that scuttled the clipper chip debate in the 90s. It's just that now, in the wake of 9-11, there's no room for debate about the possible ramifications. The NSA was simply given the blank check to create the apparatus that they always wanted. And steps one through seven of that apparatus were about making sure that impenetrable cryptology would be forever kneecapped. The NSA hoovers up every bit of data because it's so easy to do so, and simply because now it can. In the New York Times article from 1994 talking about the clipper chip, it mentions that in all of 1993, only 919 federal, state, and local wiretaps were authorized. Those were all the authorized surveillance operations for the entire country. And that was back in the technologically simple days of wiretapping. In 2012, by contrast, there were 1,789 surveillance requests and 15,229 national security letters presented to those secret FISA courts that we've read about. So clearly there's more that they want to look at these days, and that's only the stuff that they ask to look at. But the actual surveillance is always probably secondary to the prime directive of ensuring that the surveillance remains possible, that the backdoors and the exploits are there in the tech, that truly secure encryption is a mirage just beyond us on the horizon. And maybe that's what we should keep in mind as the debate about our national security and government surveillance moves forward. It's unlikely that we can replicate the political environment that killed the clipper chip in the 1990s, but again, it's the Democrats who are in power and are in bed with Big Brother now. But it's the Republicans today that don't seem to be all that concerned about that fact. The generation that runs Silicon Valley these days also seems a far cry from the hybrid hippie-slash-libertarian generation that founded the web. If anything, <clears throat> uh, Mark Zuckerberg, they view privacy as a weird anachronism. Certainly, there's still a movement to preserve our digital civil rights, and some corporations seem to be just as offended by governmental overreach as we are. But if we're really going to reclaim the web from the NSA and other Orwellian bad actors out there, maybe we just have to keep in mind that it's the power of the Internet itself that the NSA fears. Bulletproof encryption is always possible. We just need to rebuild an infrastructure that makes it workable. The NSA has been struggling to bottle the genie of digital encryption for 25 years now, and they know that either one of two outcomes is possible. Either everything in modern life will be on the net, permanently traceable, catalogable, and recorded, or else everything in modern life will be on the net, but 
it will be opaque. As a footnote, I started this piece with a quote from John Ashcroft, who was a member of the administration that presided over the implementation of the current NSA surveillance regime. And yet, some of you might remember the story about how, from a hospital bed, Ashcroft himself refused to authorize some of the specific surveillance measures he felt were a bridge too far. I'll let Ars Technica take it from here. Quote, The infamous showdown took place in March 2004, while Ashcroft was recovering from illness in a hospital bed. Acting Attorney General James Comey, now President Obama's nominee to head the FBI, was refusing to reauthorize one component of the secret surveillance program. Comey concluded that it was illegal. This prompted the White House counsel, Alberto Gonzalez, to rush to Ashcroft's hospital room in hopes of getting the ailing AG to counterman Comey, who was tipped off about Gonzalez's plan and sped there as well. In the confrontation that ensued, Ashcroft supported Comey, both formally, because Comey was legally the attorney general while Ashcroft was incapacitated, and on the legal substance. President Bush reauthorized the program despite the Justice Department's conclusion that it was unlawful. Comey then threatened to resign, with Ashcroft, FBI Director Robert Mueller, and other top officials reportedly ready to join him. Bush ultimately backed down, and the troublesome program was briefly suspended until it could be renewed under a different legal authority. In 2008, we learned that the central bone of contention during this showdown wasn't warrantless wiretapping, but rather some form of data mining. More recently, via reporting in the Washington Post and a classified NSA report leaked by The Guardian, we learned that the controversy specifically involved Internet, not telephone metadata, end quote. So it seems that, however briefly, Ashcroft regained the conscience that had once enabled him to voice the words I quoted at the beginning of this piece. Maybe we just need other people in government to find their consciences in similar ways. If you're enjoying this podcast, there's one simple thing that you can do to help us out. If you do nothing else, just go to iTunes and rate us. One to five stars takes about two seconds. Or give us a review because the weird way that iTunes works is it's not just the number of downloads, it's also the number of ratings and reviews. As always, you can join the conversation at www.internethistorypodcast.com. Get more info, see pictures, and see my full bibliography for each episode. The show's Twitter is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.